Galatians 5, we are looking this morning at verses 19 through 21 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. The title of our sermon this morning are, is Works of the Flesh, and our key words are flesh, immorality, and kingdom. Now, one of the great debates of the world is whether or not the game of Monopoly should be played according to the rules that were written when the game was created, or if the players are free to make up additional rules as they go along. For example, the free parking space on the Monopoly board is just that. A free space. It is not a magical space that entitles you to a pot of money in the middle of the board that was actually supposed to have been placed back into the bank. You cannot take loans from the bank unless you have properties to mortgage. A player cannot decide that they're going to just let someone pass by their property because they're friends and they don't have to pay rent because they want to help them out. Do you know why Monopoly takes so long to play? Because people make up their own rules. And if you would just play the game like a greedy capitalist, it doesn't take long. I mean, after all, it is called Monopoly, not give and take. Rules, you see, are given in games so that there's a purpose. It creates boundaries so that we can know what to do as scenarios present themselves. Can you imagine a basketball game without the boundary lines of the court or rules that govern the need to dribble the ball when you move or how you can and cannot make physical contact with another player? It would be chaos. It probably wouldn't be all that fun. Now, sometimes we want to think about freedom And we want freedom without thought given to any boundaries whatsoever, especially in our American minds. We are quick to think that rules or boundaries are restrictive and unhelpful. Now, to be sure, sometimes they are. But we surely cannot deny the fact that they often serve a very important purpose. If you've ever been to a country and tried to drive where they don't have traffic laws, you become very thankful for lanes and stop signs and stoplights. The rules actually help create order and get people places in a much quicker fashion. Or think of a piece of music. Nobody complains that a, a musician's ability to express themselves creatively because they're bound up to notes and rhythms written on a page is all restricted. True freedom that avoids bondage and chaos simultaneously requires form. It requires structure. Freedom requires boundaries within which it can operate. Liberty can only be truly exercised within a framework, or else you end up with things like postmodern art. Now, in chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul has launched into a discussion on Christian liberty. 
And he's been dealing with all of its implications since we saw about verse 6. And we looked at what Christian liberty is, and then we dealt with the fact that it's not an all-out license to do whatever we please as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather it is to be worked out in love for one another, lest we bite, devour, and consume each other. Now, the problem is, of course, that in our hearts, all of us are rebellious. All of us are naturally unwilling to think of others more highly than ourselves. And we want to do what we want to do in the way we want to do it, when we want to do it, without anyone telling us otherwise. So Paul moved his discussion to the very important topic of sanctification, which is very much related to our understanding of how the freedom of a Christian ought to be worked out. It's not by doing whatever we want, but it's also not by supposing we need to create laws on top of laws so that we will keep ourselves from doing certain things. No, Paul tells us, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And remember, we considered this ongoing battle in the Christian between the flesh and the spirit and the ever-menacing reality of our not doing what we know we want to do and ought to do, but doing the very things we hate doing because we are so prone to gratifying the over-desires in the flesh instead of walking by the spirit. So this morning, we get into dealing with the works of the flesh. What are they? How are they identified? What happens if we walk in them? We're in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. In the blue ESV Bibles, you can find the text on page 975. And we're going to read this uh, passage together, these Uh, three verses together, and then we will look at it in three points. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the first thing Paul shows us in verse 19 is that the works of the flesh are obvious, Now, there is a danger built into receiving a list like what Paul gives us here in Galatians 5. We are already conditioned to want lists to tell us what to do and what not to do so that we can just stay in our lane and be on God's good side so that in the end we'll get to heaven and be okay. And whenever we talk about liberty and the fact that there are boundaries, we inherently want a list, don't we? The problem, of course, is that lists don't change hearts. 
my trying to outwardly conform to the items on a list don't change my heart. The best it can do is change my external behavior. And in fact, it only leads to my deception and false sense of security in Christ because I've never dealt with the issues of the heart. Now, there's no shortage of philosophers and self-help teachers trying to help you make a list so you can avoid the bad and adhere to the good. Now, none of them seem to provide a reason as to why they would call certain things good and other things bad. However, we know for a fact where it comes from. Now, one, of the, one of his most well-known works, uh, the, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle developed an entire formulation of something he called the doctrine of the mean. And I'm telling you this because it is very much in line with what we hear today in much modern philosophy and modern psychology and counsel. The whole idea is that we can list out the excesses and the deficiencies of every kind of activity and then we find the mean, the middle ground between two opposites that would allow us to live virtuous lives. So, for example, we could say if the deficiency is cowardice, and the excess is rashness, then the virtuous mean is courage. And we could just go down a list and make a whole bunch of deficiencies and their excesses and come to the mean in the middle. And so for Aristotle, too much and too little were always wrong, and the right action always was right in the middle. Now, Aristotle strongly disagreed with Socrates, who simply believed that knowing the right thing always results in doing the right thing. But we know that's not true. And I hope you see the problem. Neither of these men really understood that what is truly going on with each and every person when it comes to the issue of morality and ethics and behavior is not something external to us. It's our hearts. Now, apart from biblical wisdom, all of us are prone to think like Aristotle and Socrates. Just tell me what to do, and I will do it. And on top of that, when we don't understand, and in fact distort the gospel, we completely miss it altogether and say, tell me what to do, I will do it, and because I do it, God will accept me. But what is this? It is the very thing that Paul has been writing against throughout his entire letter to the Galatians. It is external law-keeping, and it does not result in holiness in the believer and a righteous standing before God. It only results in self-righteousness. It can only result in self-justification. You see, here's the thing. Aristotle was right about something that Socrates was wrong about. We can know what's right and still not do it. And I know that's true because every single human being knows what's right and instead does what's wrong. The law of God is written on the heart of every man, woman, and child that has ever been on this earth. And so it's no surprise to us that we have an innate understanding of when we do something and it's wrong. 
You know, right now, this very moment and over this past week, people are finding out that their spouses had accounts that they paid for on a website where they were supposed to be able to arrange a meetup with another married person and commit adultery. It's supposed to be a secret website, and everyone's information is supposed to be protected. The tagline of the company is, life is short, have an affair. But surprise, someone leaked all of the information of the millions of people who were found on the website, and now everyone is freaking out and looking to see if their spouse's email address was linked to an account because they never actually trusted them in the first place. Now, why is it that all of this was done in secret? Why is, why is it that this was something that was supposed to be confidential, that everyone is all of a sudden freaking out about when it's in public? Because everybody knows, every single person that has ever lived knows that it is wrong to commit adultery because it is written on their hearts. It is God's law, whether you are a Christian or not. You cannot escape that reality, even though you may try to suppress it. And sadly, I just read a few days ago that today there will be no less than 400 pastors and elders from churches across this country who are stepping down from their ministry positions today because it was found out that they themselves had those accounts. They know. We know. And yet we try to hide it in the secret because we feel the weight of the sin God has made known to us by his law. So you see, brothers and sisters, it's not just about God saying, don't do this, and then we won't do it. Paul has driven home the fact that we all fail to uphold the law of God, and the more we try in our own strength to do it, the further and harder we fall. And we can try to lie to ourselves, we can try to justify our actions all along the way, but everyone knows adultery is wrong, or they wouldn't try to hide it. And that's why Paul says here in verse 19 that the works of the flesh are obvious. We know what they are. We don't need to be told that they are wrong, it is already clear to us. But this just proves to us that having a list doesn't change our actions. So here's my point. Paul doesn't give us this list of the works of the flesh as if to tell us, like Socrates or Aristotle, here's what not to do, just don't do these things and you'll be okay. No, in fact, something we've thought a lot about through Galatians is that Paul is constantly teaching the fact that natural man can only do the works of the flesh. The natural man has no other option but to do the works of the flesh because he doesn't walk by the Spirit. He lives upon the flesh. Remember, back in verse 16, he wrote, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what is implied here? If you don't walk by the Spirit, you will gratify the desires of the flesh. And the natural man doesn't have the Spirit of God, And so he will only do the works of the flesh. So why does Paul give us this list? 
If we can't just make ourselves not do these works, why the list? We need to remember the context here. One verse back in verse 18, Paul wrote, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But now we see in Paul's mind to be under the law and to be wrapped up in all of these over-desires that he mentions in the list are the same thing. In other words, the thing that causes us to have over-desire is for us to be under the law. And it's being under the law that creates these things that Paul lists out. Let me help us to get to this, hopefully. What what is the book of Galatians about? It's about a group of Gentile Christians, and they've come under the influence of a group of teachers who has said to them, you have to completely obey the law of God and go back into every part of the Mosaic legislation, and you have to take it on, and you have to be incredibly obedient to everything that was written in every single possible way. And what does Paul say to this? He's saying, you want to go back under the law. Now, notice he says under the law. He doesn't say you want to obey the law. He doesn't mean that being under the law and being obedient to the law are the same thing. Because nowhere ever has Paul ever said that we don't have to obey God's law. Remember, again, it was just back in verse 13. Paul reminded the Galatians that they were called to freedom. But that doesn't mean that their freedom was given for them to indulge in their sinful nature, but rather to serve one another in love. And then he says this, the entire law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is he saying? Obedience to the law is necessary. So he's not saying that to get out from under the law means you get out from under obedience. What he is saying, that to be under the law is to rely upon the law. I hope you see the difference. Law obeying and law relying are completely different. Law relying is saying, by my performance, I can obtain salvation. By my works, I will know that God has accepted me and I am worthy. So now we have Paul saying, as you try to rely on the law for your acceptance, you are getting at the source of everything that's wrong in your life because it's completely opposed to being led by the Spirit. You are giving in to every over-desire of the flesh. And the more you try to do, the more your over-desires are actually heightened. And if you've ever lived in a legalistic setting, you know this is true. The more you try yourself to conform to outward expectations, the more you fail. And the more guilt you feel. And so the more weight you put upon yourself to try to get to this place and it just builds and builds on itself because you're relying on yourself and your behavior instead of the Spirit of God. So Paul tells us the works of the flesh are obvious. Why are they obvious? Because we have God's law on our hearts and there's no way for us to legitimately question what's right or wrong. How do we know if we're still trying to live under the law? 
relying on the law. If we see the works of the flesh played out in our lives, that's why we have the list. And we hopefully have these categories settled in our mind. And and it gets us to another question. What are the works of the flesh? They're obvious, Paul tells us. And once we hear them, we will all agree. It is obvious to us that all of these are wrong. What are those things? We see our second point this morning. The works of the flesh are numerous. And he begins in verse 19 and lists them out through verse 21. Now, Paul has listed out 15 works of the flesh, and we can group them into four different categories. He lists out sexual sins, religious sins, relational sins, and sins regarding a lack of moderation. So let's examine these four categories of sin. The first are sexual sins. Now, on numerous occasions, the Bible calls us to flee sexual sins. Now, here, Paul lists three sins specifically, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. All three of these, for obvious reasons, violate the seventh commandment, which deals specifically with sexual sin and the sanctity of marriage. So, sexual immorality. Paul's dealing with Uh, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, pornography, and any such thing that leads to these acts. He says impurity, or we can also say uncleanness. And this gets to the heart of what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said it's not just about the physical sin of adultery, it's about the heart. And if a man lusts in his heart after a woman who is not his wife, he has already committed the sin of adultery in his heart. So impurity here is all lusts and fantasies that are worked out through word and deed in immoral conversations, in in the things we read and say. Paul mentions sensuality. He's specifically addressing immodesty in dress and suggestive behaviors and seduction and sexual coercion. Now, you know, there is not a culture that has existed which hasn't seen sexual sin at the heart of its existence and its downfall. It's a powerful force. It ensnares people. More than any other kind of sin, it involves the whole person, the mind, the heart, and the body. It works like a drug when we indulge in it. We begin to think irrationally. We begin to justify in our thoughts and our actions. We disregard consequences of our flesh as it cries out that it needs it and it wants it and it's going to be much better off if it has it. But it will always destroy us in some way or another. Sexual intimacy is a gift. It's given by God to be enjoyed and delighted in within the confines of marriage. Once it steps outside of those boundaries, it becomes a destructive force with a power unlike many others. We would all do very well to hear Paul's exhortation over and over and over again. Flee sexual immorality. 
when you're tempted to look or tempted to notice or tempted to pursue someone's advances. That's not your spouse. Flee sexual immorality. Walk in the spirit and not in the flesh and you will give thanks to God for keeping you from all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the destruction that comes from every form of sexual sin. The second group that he lists are religious sins. Now here, Paul is applying God's second commandment, and he lists two religious sins, idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry deals with false worship in every form. So the issue isn't just the worship of false gods, but it is also any false worship of the one true God. It can also be the worship of the one true God through images. God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. So we are not to make images depicting him or to worship him through any kind of image. It's also the refusal to come to the one true God through the Lord Jesus Christ or to worship him in any way contrary to what God has identified in the scriptures. Now, ultimately, to reject idolatry is to put God first in our trust, in our affections, and in our priorities throughout all of life, believing all that God has revealed in his word and living our lives upon what he has said and promised and commanded. He mentions sorcery. Now, sorcery in the Greek is a word from which we get our word pharmacy. So you can probably figure out here, Paul is dealing with those things that include formulas and potions to work magic and cast spells and curses. Another way this is often translated is witchcraft. Now, brothers and sisters, I think it's easy for us to hear this and sort of brush it off and not think it's that big of a deal. But I want to challenge us to think about this. We probably have images in our mind. When we say sorcery or witchcraft, we're thinking a bunch of ugly witches with long hair and pointy noses and pointy black hats standing around a cauldron, stirring potions, ready to cast a spell on someone. And we think, I don't do that. That's silly. But sorcery includes things like the use of mediums, fortune-telling, astrology, psychics, Ouija boards. It even extends into any time we rely on superstitions. My lucky socks. My crossed fingers. My knocking on wood. You know, as Christians, we will readily admit the supernatural elements of Scripture. Like Jesus being raised from the dead. Or being born of a virgin. Or healing the multitudes. But for some reason, when it comes to something like sorcery, we're often quick to reject it without giving it any credence whatsoever. But here's the thing. The supernatural world is very real. And it's not just the wonderful things we read about in Scripture. It's also many evil things as well. Now remember, Satan is real right alongside all of his minions. And if you're entertained by things like going on a ghost tour or having your palm read or going to a psychic, you are very dangerously opening yourself up to the occult. And in doing so, you're dishonoring God. It is a work of the flesh. 
The third category is relational sins. Now, I'm not going to go through each of these other than to define them for us and to make some general comments on the category as a whole. He mentions enmity. That's a, a state of bitterness and vindictiveness toward another person. The bitter, spirited person constantly feels animosity towards those who they assume have wronged them. And few things will do more damage to a relationship than enmity. Strife. Strife is that which marks a person who cause tension and difficulties in relationships through their speech. It comes through harsh words or slander or gossip. Jealousy is what happens when we're discontent with our own circumstances and resent others because of what they possess or what they receive. Fits of anger. I'm sure none of us have ever had these. But anger is the very expression of enmity and impatience and discontentedness. And it often manifests itself in passionate outbursts of wrath and malice. Rivalries, or your version might say disputes. This often manifests itself in a false teacher who seeks to discredit the truth. Throwing up intellectual doubts and and, uh, uh, stumbling blocks. Trying to turn people away from a specific understanding or position. Dissensions. These happen when rivalries break out in a group, along with a lack of respect for those given to lead or direct. It begins with disputing, but but suddenly it turns into the undermining of authority and creating questions that lead to doubt. It is what Satan did with Eve. Did God really say? Divisions. These happen when one person or one group of people thinks of themselves more highly than others. It's a sense of superiority that drives us apart instead of a position of love and humility that brings us together and keeps us together even in the midst of conflict or difficulty. Envy. Envy is jealousy to the extreme. It's, it's wicked malice. It is designed to destroy others because you cannot stand that they have success or that they have something you want. Now notice that all of these relational sins are not just separate things that might happen, but many of them are interrelated. It's the nature of sin. It's a row of dominoes. And once one falls, the others follow right after. One will lead to the other, and then the other, and then the other. Now, brothers and sisters, within our homes and within our church, we are most responsible to ensure that we avoid these relational sins. These things are grievous to God. These things stir up thoughts. They stir up attitudes of our heart that are very dark and very dangerous. Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, there are times when we can't live at peace. 
One example of that is Paul's relationship with the Judaizers. He not only rejects their teaching, remember he said back in chapter 1 that they were preaching a different gospel, therefore let them be accursed. I would say he's probably not living at peace with them. But when we are dealing especially with our homes and within our church, we must do all that we can to live at peace with one another. Being accountable to one another. Being willing to give up our personal preferences to maintain unity and peace. And when we disagree, we do so charitably to one another in our disagreements. Being willing to hear one another out. Never letting our emotional responses drive us to make irrational decisions or to drive us apart from one another. Each and every one of us has a responsibility to do all that we can to maintain unity and peace. And whenever we are at fault individually and we are the cause of conflict, we need to be quick to repent to seek reconciliation, and to move forward in peace. And listen, the answer to conflict is never, ever, ever, ever to just walk out on one another. You shouldn't do that in your marriage. If you're a parent, you would not tolerate that from your children. If you are a boss, you wouldn't accept that from your employees. So we cannot and we should not ever give ourselves the option to just walk out on each other. Relationships matter. They can get difficult. They can be very messy. But we need each other and the Lord has put us all together. So we must strive to walk by the Spirit that we might continually live in peace and unity with one another. Well, the fourth category of sins is a lack of moderation. Drunkenness, as Paul refers to here, is not just an addiction to alcohol, but to any kind of substance that alters your behavior to a degree that you have no self-control. Now, from beginning to end, the Bible does two things. One, it recognizes the gift of alcohol as acceptable to enjoy and be thankful for. And two, it forbids drunkenness. And here Paul would include any kind of sin of the body to include gluttony or any other kinds of addiction. God has given us good gifts to enjoy as his creatures. But mankind has always been quick to take those gifts to misuse them in ways that they can indulge in the flesh and go against what God has designed for its proper use. Now, a warning goes with this, and that is if, that, if we can't be moderate, we need to be honest about it, and we must abstain totally from anything we're easily tempted by. If you struggle in this area, in the spirit of Christ, you can and will gain victory over it, and indeed, you must. Those who have the spirit of God will not continue on in a state of drunkenness. Now, the ESV translates this last item as orgies, but that's not a very helpful word here, I don't think, because it doesn't really communicate what Paul is getting at. When we think of that, we are generally attributing it to something of a sexual nature, but Paul is referring here to something more like carousing or debauchery. Putting ourselves 
among people and in places that are intentionally seeking to engage in debauchery. There's no doubt that Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 15.33 stands true. Bad company corrupts good morals. And while we need, we need not be shy about building relationships with those we want to bring to the truth, we must be vigilant not to put ourselves in situations where we are carousing. And if you've ever fallen to peer pressure, this is where it happens. Now, before we leave the list of sins, notice Paul says, and things like these. There are several instances throughout Paul's letter where he makes lists of sins. And depending on who he's writing to, they may be a little bit different. The point is that the intention was never to make a comprehensive list that we can consider exhaustive. So he just says, and things like these. But remember, he said, the works of the flesh are obvious. So let me tell you a few, and things like these, you know what they are. And perhaps something you've heard is striking you right now, and you realize, I see myself in this. I see myself walking in this from time to time, or I see myself walking in this consistently. Or maybe you're saying, I have sin in my life, but nothing that I am sinning in shows up on this list, so I guess it's not a big deal. Remember what James teaches. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And Paul gives us all of this for a very specific purpose. Why is it so important that we understand this? Why do we spend our whole morning talking about a list of sins? Because it's a matter of life and death. Our final point this morning from verse 21, a worker of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is teaching what Jesus taught. The works of a person give witness to whether or not they are walking in the spirit. In other words, a bad tree does not produce good fruit and a good tree does not produce bad fruit. And this list, these things that Paul gives us, is him saying, listen, if you are walking with the Spirit, you are not going to do these things. But if you are not walking with the Spirit, you may think you can avoid them, but you cannot. And when you see them in your life as as regular occurrences that you have every intention of repeating and every desire to continue walking in, know this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me some pause. Because out of a list of 15 things and him ending it by saying, and things like these, I know I'm right in the middle of all of that. I can look over this and see things I'm guilty of. So how does this not just rock us of any assurance that we have? Now, there is no doubt that sometimes Christians will do what is sinful and what our flesh wants us to do, contrary to the Spirit. King David, for example, he fell horribly into adultery. Then he had a man killed in battle to cover his sin. 
He was the reason the entire nation of Israel began to see major defeats on the battlefield. But what did God say of David? He's a man after my own heart. You see, David's sins were grievous, they were heinous, but they weren't committed through a willful contempt for God, but through a weakness and caving to the flesh. What's the important factor in David's life that turns this all around for us? Remember what happened when David was confronted for all that he did by the prophet Nathan. What did David do? He repented. That is the key. He repented. True repentance follows sin in the Christian's life. And when you sin and you recognize what you have done to be sin, is there repentance? If not, why not? Brothers and sisters, the flesh is so deceptive on so many levels, and we are so often prone to do exactly what it wants from us. But when we walk by the Spirit, we realize that the desires of the flesh are all a bunch of lies. And as Christians, we're not obligated to indulge the flesh like we once were. We have a far greater promise than anything the flesh can offer. And so here's what we know to be true from God's word. Pardon is not denied to those who sin and fall through weakness so long as we don't continue to walk in sin as one who is unrepentant. Now, friends, perhaps some of you have thought through all this today and you see here in what Paul has written or you've heard how I've explained it and you're thinking, that's me. I do these things. I've never felt a twinge of guilt because of these things. And in fact, I chase after them and I delight in them. I can tell you, if that is you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whatever you suppose is at work to get you through the grave to God will not happen if your heart is set on these things, rejecting what God has called good, delighting in what God has called evil. Flee to Christ. Turn away from the works of the flesh. Run to Christ that he might give you a desire to walk by the Spirit. Confess your sins to Jesus. He will not turn you away. Trust him. Love him. He will receive you. And brothers and sisters, take heart. While we might find ourselves at times in some of these very sins, we have the spirit of God within us that brings us to repentance. We also have one another. Don't forego opportunities for repentance for reconciliation, for peace. Stay accountable to one another and trust that the Lord will keep you and never forsake you even when you fall. You know, more than anything, lists like this should bring us to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is willing to save all who will cry out to him in repentance and faith. And moreover, as Christians, we come daily and often to Christ for cleansing 
as well as to receive power to resist the deeds of the flesh. May all of us be faithful to run to Jesus. That in our lives we would receive all, that, that God would receive all of the, the glory for the lives we live. And that we might find our joy not in the works of the flesh, but by walking in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we recognize that at times your word pierces us. It pierces us because it forces us to deal with the realities of our flesh. It forces us to deal with the deeds that we do, the things that we walk in from time to time, the ways that we respond to them. And Father, we pray that you help us to not live as those under the law, but as a people who seek to obey the law with thankful, grateful hearts, knowing that we cannot fulfill it for ourselves, knowing that we will sin, that we will fall, that there will be need for repentance and restoration and reconciliation. And I pray, God, that over all of it, each and every one of us would be determined to hear your word that we must flee sexual immorality, that we must worship the one and only true God in the ways that you have prescribed, that we must strive with everything that is in us to live at peace with one another, And that we will not be given over to acts of debauchery. I pray, God, that you would make our hearts all the more sensitive to sin. That we would be quick to repent. And that we would delight in Jesus, who is our all in all. We can rest in him and all that he has accomplished for us. May you receive all the glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.